Today we begin our Advent series, which we are calling The Prophets Foretold. As we make our way to Christmas over the next few weeks, we'll be spending some time looking at what some of the Old Testament prophets had to say about the coming king, what the prophets had to say about Jesus. We're starting this morning with a text from Jeremiah. Now, in order to recognize what this text meant to the people who heard it originally, we need to understand the situation into which Jeremiah was speaking. Jeremiah lived during a turbulent time in the history of Israel. The people were living in open rebellion to God, and that that never really made a prophet's life easy. During Jeremiah's time as a prophet of Israel, Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, invaded Judah and destroyed Jerusalem, the capital city, the country. Many Israelites were taken into captivity, but Jeremiah stayed with the remnant that was left behind to pick up the pieces. Life was not easy during Jeremiah's time. The the people he was sent to were divided. Many were taken into captivity. The things that they had held dear had been destroyed. And for much of his ministry, the words that the Lord gave him to proclaim to the people were words of condemnation, caution, and calls to repentance. It's no wonder that he is often referred to as the weeping prophet. And yet, Despite the gloom and doom of his usual messages to the people, there were sprinkled in also messages of hope. And it's one of those texts, texts, one of those messages that, this, that the text will be looking at this morning. This morning we're in Jeremiah 33, verses 14 to 16. If you have your Bibles with you, you are welcome to turn there. If not, that's totally cool as the words will be on the screen behind me. I encourage you to follow along as I read the word of the Lord this morning. Jeremiah 33, 14 to 16. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good promise I made to the people of Israel and Judah. In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Thus ends the reading. Let's pray. God, I, I thank you for your word, for your word is truth. God, I pray that you would speak through your word this morning, that you would perform the miracle that feeds our souls. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, Thanksgiving is behind us. And so we've reached a time where there is at least one thing that most of us can agree on. It's now acceptable to listen to Christmas music. All over Facebook and my socials the past few months, the debate has raged over whether it's okay to turn on those Christmas jingles. Some are in the as soon as the calendar hits October group. Some are in the after Halloween group. Some are in the never before Thanksgiving group. And there are those that just go with the simple never. But life's too short to be that much of a Grinch, so since we've passed the, the final legitimate group's barrier, Thanksgiving is the, in the rear view, and now we can sing Christmas songs guilt-free. One of the songs that tends to stand out for me during this season is a song sung by Andy Williams, and it's titled, It's the Most Wonderful Time of the Year. And while I admit that the melody and the sound of that old crooner's voice conjures images of snowflakes, a, a cup of hot coffee, and watching my children make short work of the hours of rapping that Karen and I put in, I struggle with the words sometimes. 
Because sometimes, though I love Christmas and I love the focus on Jesus being born and the season of giving and how the baby in the manger makes God's grace so tangible and the general feelings of joy that permeate the season, there are outside influences that hit me harder these days. Many of you know that my wife was pregnant with a daughter back during the Christmas season of 2018. But in late September, early October, we had been given news that our daughter had a rare genetic disorder by the name of trisomy 18. And the prognosis wasn't very good. Our daughter was, in all likelihood, not going to make it. Karen and I did our best to soldier through. The love and support of our families, friends, and our church helped us during those times, but it wasn't easy. We lived in a fog of worry that holiday season. We were very concerned that our little girl would pass during the Christmas season, and we were nervous that it would be a cloud over future Christmases, should that be the case. We made it through Christmas in 2018, but our daughter was stillborn on January 10th of 2019. So yes, we made it through the time of carols, cookies, and candlelight services, but I have found that my body and my mind don't do a great job of recognizing that. Every year since, during this time of year, I have quietly mourned through sudden and new aches and pains. My body has mourned that I am not buying dolls or dresses for my little girl. And so though I love the Christmas season, I love the message of hope that comes with the birth of our Savior. I love giving gifts, and I love that emphasis on family and being together. I have a hard time singing that it's the most wonderful time of the year. And I know that I'm not alone in this. The struggles of living in a world broken by sin have touched us all. And sometimes they hit a little harder during the holidays. Even though this is a season that focuses on joy and giving, the harsh realities of living in a world broken by sin do not leave us unscathed. We may not live in a time exactly like the times of the prophet Jeremiah, but the same sin that destroyed his world destroys ours. Our families, friends, and neighbors may not have been taken into captivity by foreign invaders, but that doesn't mean that we don't feel separated from them or alone at times. The weight of the ones we have lost is heavier during this season no matter when we lost them. And though during this season we focus more on being together, statistics show that this is a time of year when depression and loneliness spike. Our world is broken. Things don't happen the way that we want them to all the time. Struggle and hardship are real. They are tangible. They are no longer a boogeyman in the closet. They are a companion on the road of life. And so we, like the people of Israel all those years ago, are looking for an answer to the struggle, to the pain that accompanies living. We are looking for hope. And that is what we find in Jeremiah 33, 14 to 16. The word the Lord gave to the prophet Jeremiah in our text this morning is a word of hope. He is telling the people that he has not forgotten them. That he knows that times are rough and that things aren't going the way that they would like, the way that they had planned, but that he has not forgotten the promises that he has made to them. The days are coming when I will fulfill the promise I made to the people of Israel and Judah, declares the Lord. 
And once he has acknowledged the promise made, he gives them some insight into his plan. He goes back over how a righteous branch will sprout from the line of David. Remember, this is taking place way past David's time. Dude's been in the ground a long time now, and things are falling apart. But that doesn't mean that God has forgotten his promises. And so here's a reminder that those promises will still come true. God has not left them. He has not forgotten them or ignored them. David's line will still bear the one who will do what is right and what is just. The one who will save Judah and Jerusalem is coming. There will be a day when they are saved. This is the promise of God. We know that this prophecy is pointing to Jesus. That's why we're reading it this morning. It's, it's one of the texts where an Old Testament prophet foretells of one born from the line of David who will save us all. We celebrate this text now because we know that it is about the one who is born in a manger, heralded by angels, and celebrated by shepherds. It tells us of a God who became man, who was born into this world amid the stink of a barnyard, who would grow up the son of a carpenter, getting splinters and sweating over the chisel and hammer. He would run with his brothers and the neighborhood boys and skin his knees. He would bleed and sweat and thirst. He would know hunger and pain. Death would take people that he loved. And one day this God would become man and would, would become a man, would grow to a man, and would die himself. For he would be betrayed by one of his followers and abandoned by his friends. He would be subjected to a rigged trial, and though he was innocent, would be found guilty. He would be whipped and mocked, spit on and laughed at. He would carry a cross up a hill on his shoulders. But it would not just be the weight of that cursed tree that was a burden for him, for that cross, for with that cross, he also carried the sins of the world, your sin, my sin, the sin of those we love, and the sin of those that we hate. He carried all of the sin of the entire world as he hung on that cross, nails piercing his hands and his feet. There on that cursed tree, he became sin for us. He became the sin of the Israelites and their countless idolatries, and he became the sin of Daniel Stemberg and his countless failures. Jesus became sin, including your sin, on that tree. For there is no sin that was left untouched. All sin was placed upon him, and there on that cross he died for it. But he did not stay dead. For three days later, he rose from the grave, defeating sin and death. And here we see the last line of our text this morning fulfilled. The prophet Jeremiah said, and I know if you read along with the NIV, it's, it's a little different. I like the version in the, in the ESV better, so I just took that last line because it hits a little harder. It's a little more uh, accurate uh, with, with the words. This is the name by which it will be called, The Lord is Our Righteousness. The Lord is Our Righteousness. The Bible tells us that when we believe in Jesus, when we believe that he is who he says he is, that he did what he says he did, when, he, when we are baptized, when we are resting in the faith that he has given us, the Bible tells us that we have put on Christ, that Christ's righteousness has been imputed to us, it has been given to us as if it is our own. When we believe in Jesus and have faith in him, then the dirty rags of our sins have been taken from us and we have been put and we have put on the clean, pure, holy robes of Christ's righteousness. Jesus Christ is our righteousness, and because of him and his righteousness given to us, 
we can have a relationship with God. This isn't something that we earn through good works. This isn't something that we qualify for. This is something that we are given through faith. It is unmerited. We do not deserve it. We can never deserve it. This is God's grace heaped upon us. When the prophet Jeremiah says that Jesus will do what is right and just, and that Judah and Jerusalem will be saved, this is what he's talking about. We are saved through the one who has become our righteousness. Jesus Christ, the baby in the manger, is the word of hope given not just to the people of Israel all those years ago, but to us today as well. And that's kind of hard in some ways, right? Because though we are so thankful for Jesus and all that he has done for us, we look at those people in Jeremiah's time, and though the blood of Jesus on the cross paid for their sins as well, they would still suffer for generations waiting for the promised Messiah to come, waiting for the promise to be kept. I wonder what it was like for the people suffering in captivity in Babylon and those who were left behind in Judah to hear these words of promise from the mouth of Jeremiah. I'm sure there were many questions. Why can't we just be saved now? Why can't these promises be kept today? What's stopping you from making everything right, everything better at this moment, God? Can't you see that we're suffering? Can't you see that we're miserable and alone and that life is just really stinking hard right now and I'm tired of it and I don't know how much longer I can keep this up? What's stopping you from keeping your promise to make this better right now? Man, I'll tell you what. Those questions resonate with me today. For in the same way that the people of Israel were looking forward to the coming Messiah, we today are looking forward to when he comes again. There's a promise that we have in the book of Revelation, and we find it in chapter 21. The apostle John is on the Isle of Patmos, and he has a vision, and there are lots of like crazy things that take place in his vision, and he writes it all down. In, in this book of Revelation, people are still trying to parse this, this whole, all this imagery. And, and I think that they'll be trying to parse some of this imagery in this book until Christ comes again. And then it's all going to make sense. But one of the passages, one of the pieces of this vision is a word of hope for us today. In Revelation, verses, Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 to 5, we read, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And then there's verse 4. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Now, even the imagery in this text can be a little rough to parse, right? A city coming down from heaven dressed as a bride. All right, man. Though I will say, when you get into it and start to parse it, it's a beautiful and fantastic picture. But even though all this imagery doesn't readily or initially make sense, there are some clear truths here that we can cling to. 
We see the old world will be passing away. There will be no more crying or death or pain. For the one who is seated on the throne is going to make everything new. And that includes us. That means that one day we will be restored to the way that God originally intended us to be. Either I won't have to go to the gym anymore to stay in shape, or I'll love getting up at the crack of dawn and getting in my workout. I do not love it right now. It is terrible. It means that we won't fight anymore. That there will be peace. That death will no longer be our enemy, for death will be forever defeated. The scars, emotional, psychological, and physical that we carry today will be healed. The sin that we struggle against will be taken. The bodies that this world has broken will be made new. They will be made sinless. They will function as intended. And we will experience life as God originally intended it before sin entered the world and corruption infected everything in our lives. This is a promise that we look forward to. This is a promise that we can't wait to see realized. And so as we sit in the struggle of our lives, we echo the questions of our counterparts way back in the time of Jeremiah and asked, why, Lord, why are you delaying to keep this promise? It sounds fantastic. Like, this is going to be awesome. Why aren't you relieving the pain? Why aren't you making me feel better? When will you make me new? And you know, while Scripture does not fault us for asking these questions, the book of Psalms is littered with questions along these lines aimed at God, we are still not given the answer. We are instead told to wait in the promise and trust that one day all of this will come true. And looking at that, it can kind of feel like God made a promise and then took a vacation and left us waiting for him to come back. You know, like kids in the window and their parents go on a date and they don't like their babysitter. We've got our noses pressed against the glass and we're crying, wishing that, that mom and dad would come, like, just turn around, don't get in the van, don't get in the van, just, just come back and be here with me now. We don't want you to leave, you just need to stay. And if we can relate to those feelings, then I have some good news for us. For though we wait for him to come again, our God has never truly left. We see this with the Israelites. Yes, hardship happened to them, but God was with them in the Babylonian captivity, and he was with those who remained behind. We see him physically with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they were tossed into the fiery furnace because they would not bow down and worship the statue of Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. God did not abandon them to their fate. He wasn't on vacation. He wasn't on a date chowing down on stakes somewhere. He was there in the fire of the furnace with them as witnessed by the king who threw them in. And the story of Daniel also takes place during the Babylonian exile. And did God's vacation keep him from shutting the mouths of the lions when Daniel was tossed into the pit? No. These stories all took place during the time of Babylonian captivity. God, though he did not fulfill the promises made to his people on their schedule, also did not abandon them. He caused them to prosper in captivity and eventually led them out and back to the land that he had promised, back to the land where he had sustained the remnant that had been left behind. And friends, church, the same is true for us. The God who did not abandon his people back then has not abandoned us today. He has never truly left, but is with us still. God has not left himself untouched by our struggles and pains and the hurts of our lives. He has promised to go with us and walk beside us. He is our ever-present help in times of need. He will never leave us 
or abandon us. And so when we struggle to sing along with the words that say it's the most wonderful time of the year, let us remember the Christ child in the manger. Let us remember that he is a word of hope. Let us remember that he is a promise kept. And as we rest in that promise kept, may that give us strength to rest in the promises that have yet to be fulfilled. Let us rest in the truth that one day all will be made new. I'm praying for you, church, that God would encourage you, that he would bless you, that you feel his presence beside you as you suffer, as you face hardship and pain. And that at the same time, you would be able to rest in the joys of this wonderful season. That you would see the promises that God has already kept, and that you would have faith in the promises that are still to come. May God bless you as we enter the wonderful season of promise with this fantastic word of hope. What an amazing, wonderful, caring, gracious, and merciful God we serve. Amen.